Good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. We are on the second half of the book of Colossians. We're going to be going through chapter 3 today. And uh, we've been in this for quite a few weeks. I think we're on week 7 now. We've been digging in and getting into some deep stuff and deep theological things and, and things that maybe you haven't heard of before, uh, but uh, we're continuing on and, and it's a, we have a couple more weeks and then we'll be into Easter and we'll do a nice Easter celebration and Easter service. Uh, we'll also do communion during the Easter service um, and we'll also have a baptism coming up so uh, we'll be planning that this week. So we have a lot of things going on and, and it's exciting and, I, and I'm glad that we're going through this book. It's a very challenging book. It's challenged me. It's, uh, hopefully it's challenged you as we've gone through this. Isaac Newton's first law of motion states this, says everything continues in a state of rest unless it is compelled to change by forces impressed upon it. In other words, change is dependent upon some outside force to push you. That's what forces change. So even in our own personal lives, we can probably attest to that. So something has happened in our lives, and it forces us to change. Um, and uh, if, if there's a, a, a car wreck, there's something forced it to wreck. There's some kind of motion involved. Always there's some kind of force that forces the change to happen. At first thought, I, we could say that, well, everything changes. That's, that makes sense. That, that's understandable. And that assumption is good, but it not detailed enough to truly understand it on its own. Change requires another, uh, another activating source, it's a secondary source to force something to change. Consider yourself five years ago. Consider yourself ten years ago. Things have changed in your life. You look different. You, uh, you probably dress maybe a little different. Uh, your hair colors maybe a little different. I mean, things change naturally. I was talking to Harold before service, and, and he brought up a good point. He mentioned the uh, high school reunions, and I have not been to mine. It's on the West Coast, but I have been in touch with some of the people over the years and, and seen some of the Facebook pictures, and, and people have changed. I know I've changed. I used to have really long hair, um, I'm, I'm, and it was very blonde. Now I have short hair, I buzz it, and it's gray. So it's, it's very different than it was 15 years ago, 20 years ago. I almost put my wedding picture up to show a change, but then I thought I couldn't do that to Jenny. She, she'd probably be mad at me doing that, so I didn't do that. Um, but, uh, but there's drastic changes over the years. You look at your own wedding pictures, and you probably see some changes. So we know that change happens. If, we, if any of one of us would slip into a coma and wake up 10 years later, we'd probably have a hard time getting around the community We'd probably be, it would be strange. We would look down the street and be like, hey, there was JCPenney's, but it's not there anymore. Or I, I, I wasn't here that long. You know, I've only been here about a year now, so coming up on a year. So there's a lot of changes in the past 10 years in this community. Wouldn't you agree? So if we fell in a coma for 10 years, it would be difficult. The so people that would see and when people would meet, we probably wouldn't even recognize some of them because of the changes that happens in their, in their life. No doubt that change happens. Change is just part of life. It's seasons change. Weather changes. Everything around us has a cycle of change. But that change occurs because of some force acting upon it. Because of the weather changes, because of drops in pressure. Winds blow. So there's changes that happen. Now, in this, in this 
So, uh, in this message, we're going to be talking about an exchanged life and what that means. And, and when we come to a relationship with Jesus, there's a change that happens. And there's a change in our life that happens. And there is an external force that happens, and that's called the Holy Spirit. And that's called also a relationship with Jesus. And we're going to get into that quite a bit today, and we're going to talk about that exchange, what, and that union between you and Jesus and what happens and how we have changed when we have a relationship with Jesus. But before we get into that part, we've got to do a little review of the first two chapters because in chapter 3, there's a, a pivotal point that happens. So in chapter 1, Paul deals with some serious doctrinal issues. He, he teaches doctrine in chapter 1. See, false teachers around Colossae, they were attacking the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. And so he, dealt, he went right into it and said, look, this is who Jesus is. Don't, don't follow this, this nonsense you're being taught. This is who he is, and he made it very clear. And so he deals with some doctrinal issues about who God is. See, they made, they made him, Jesus out to be not fully God, and they um, attempted to seduce believers into believing that. They taught that genuine spirituality was found in obtaining more knowledge or more rules or, or more experiences, which is called mysticism. And so they were trying to entice people to say, look, Jesus is not enough. He's not fully God, and you need a whole bunch more for you to really understand and grow with, in a relationship with God. So we dealt with that in that first chapter. Now in chapter 2, he shifts a little bit, and he goes right into a gospel explanation. He goes and teaches who Jesus is at that point. And he goes into a deep explanation of what we call Christology, a, an understanding and a doctrine of Christ and who Jesus is. And we're told that the, the truth about Jesus, that he is fully God, and that Christians, we are, we are in the fullness in him. He taught that be, about becoming a Christian and, and what that means, and also what true spirituality is, because they were trying to bring people, believers, into this false area, and so he brings them back and said, no, this is what true spirituality is about. And that's the first two chapters. So now we get into chapter 3, and now we have a, a pivotal point. And the beginning of chapter 3 is a pivotal point between the primary doctrinal sections of chapters 1 and 2. Now we're into the primary practical section of chapters 3 and 4. These verses conclude the bold statements of, to the false teachers that Paul was talking about in the first two chapters. And with further confirmation of the supremacy of Christ. So he continues that same line of thought. And they provide, he provides a, a, a starting point to an alternative to the false teachers. In chapters 3 and 4, Paul continues to follow this same progression of thought. And Paul teaches, how the, uh, the, teaches the Colossians how to hold Christ preeminent in the affections of their heart. So now he gets into a practical application. Now he says, okay, I've established who Jesus is. I've established how you get to heaven and how you can have a relationship with Jesus. I've dealt with some, some doctrinal issues. Now we're going to get into some practical things. Now we're going to get into the life lessons. These are the things that we can apply. Now that we understand who Jesus is, we can apply these things and what Paul tells us into our lives. So if you open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 17. Since you have been raised to new life in Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in a place of, high, of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. 
For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you, shall, or you will share in all his glory. So put the death, the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Do not be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used, to be, you used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all of its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you, you must clothe yourself with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowances for, one, for each other's faults, and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourself with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule your hearts, for as members of one body you are called to live this in peace. As always be thankful, let the message of Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Let's pray. Father God, as we open up this, these verses, and we study these verses, open our hearts and our minds to you. We ask the Holy Spirit to be here today and convict us, direct us, guide us, mold us, whatever you need to do so we can be fully devoted followers of you. Not on the earthly things, but on the godly things. Father God, thank you so much, and we just ask you to be here today as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing it says in the very first few verses, it says to seek things of above in the verses 1 through 4. To set the heart on the things above is to desire to strive for heavenly things. It's to, to strive for godly things. It is to see that one's interests are centered in Christ. It is to see that our ambitions, our desires, our motives are focused on Christ instead of our own desires. So the very beginning it says to seek the things from above. Forget about some of these earthly things. Make sure that we're focusing on godly things. This verb that's in here suggests a continuing action. It's not just seek it once and I'm saved and I'm done, but a continuing, continue, going on and on. Continue to seek the things of above. Continue seeking the things of above. Setting the heart on the things is describing the aim, the practical pursuit in the Christian life. It is the goal of the Christian life is to continue through our whole life to seek the things of God. That's why Scripture tells us, seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness. That's very clear that we need to seek the things of God. One motive for setting your mind on the things of, of God or, or to look at the things of God is to look at the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. 
And you can go into looking at that and, and you can see that, that because of what Jesus did on the cross and the life, death, and burial and resurrection of Jesus that should motivate us to want to seek the things of him. And this is one of the reasons why we do baptism, water baptism. We're going to have a baptism coming soon. I'm excited for it. I am super excited. I will probably tear up and cry, so don't make fun of me if I do, because I will. Because baptisms are a celebration. It's a wonderful thing. Because somebody has made that decision to follow Jesus Christ with all their heart, mind, and soul. And so we celebrate this, this beautiful picture of what the Lord has done called baptism. We are completely immersed in the water, which symbolizes the burial of our Lord. It symbolizes the burial of Jesus. We are baptized into his death on the cross, and we are no longer slaves to ourselves or to sin. We are changed. And when we are raised out of the water, it's a symbolic resurrection. We are renewed. We're raised to a new life in Christ to be with him forever, born into the family of a loving God. Water baptism also illustrates a spiritual cleansing that we experience when we get saved. When we accept Jesus Christ, a spiritual cleansing happens. And the baptism symbolizes that. Just as water cleanses the flesh, the Holy Spirit cleanses our hearts when we trust Christ. It changes us. Changes us from the inside out. A practical conclusion of this blessed union with Christ is that we as Christians are bound to be true in our conduct that represents Jesus. We are to turn away from this world that is not our home anymore. When that baptism happens, when we, when we make that decision for Christ, we are no longer of this world. We are aliens in this world. We are foreigners. And we're different. And we are to set our mind to things of above. We're supposed to set our mind to godly things, and our eyes will be open to the world, to spiritual things. The union with Christ in his death will lead us to die to this world, and lead us to live in desire, hope, thought, and love, and obedience to Christ. So right from the beginning, Paul talks about these doctrinal issues, and he clarifies it, and this is how you become saved, and now he switches gears, and he says, look, all, all this stuff is nonsense, that what they're teaching you, you have to seek the things from above. You have to follow Christ. Now, as Paul has reminded his, re his readers of their vital union with Christ and the power and encouragement it gives the holy living, we are to put off our old self. We are to put off our old man, is what they called it, the, the old behavior. Beginning in verse three or in verse five and continuing through chapter four, Paul shows practical ways to, to participate in this marriage that we have with Jesus. And, and apply it in our daily life. Now, it gets into some practical things on how we should apply these things in our practical life. And he doesn't just simply say, change the old man and the old self. He doesn't say, well, let's just change parts of it. No, he says, root it up. This is, in other verses, it supports this word. It says, basically, dig it out, root it up, and destroy it. Destroy this old self. Get rid of it out of our lives. That's how passionate he is in these in this verses. In this way, the new life of Christ will have full control over the believer. If you root it out, you no longer have control. The sin and this type of behavior does not have control in our lives. Paul speaks directly, to about, speaks directly about the demands of this new life and the urgency to crush all of the degrading tendencies that is identified with the old self. 
The underlining thought is this. Let the life that is in you by your union with Christ work itself out and express itself in all your thoughts, actions, and relationships. Let your relationship with Jesus, your union, your marriage with him be so consumed in your life that it affects your thoughts, actions, and your relationships. If you go down, if you have relationships and people don't even know you're a Christian, you need to do this. You need to just let it out. You need to show that your your union is working in itself out and expressing it. Christ changed our life, and therefore, it is up to us to participate in the changing of our lifestyle. Now, he will change us from the inside out, but we still participate in that. We are still to do certain things. We are to change our behavior and our lifestyles. Change starts with disregarding the old self. We are to put to death these practices of the past. And Paul employs two metaphors in this. He says, one, put to death, but then he, later on he also talks about putting, taking off the old clothes and putting on new clothes. So he uses these two metaphors in these verses. In, the, in telling believers to put to death certain behaviors, Paul is calling for a complete extermination, not careful regulation. A complete extermination of these old behaviors. So what must go? What is Paul talking about? Paul gives an outside-in perspective. He starts with the external actions and then moves to internal drives that which cause our conduct. His list of vices, he mentions three categories. He mentions one is, is, uh, is perverted passions. He mentions hot tempers and sharp tongues. And it's interesting to see that his, his list starts right out with sexual immorality. He goes right to the beginning, sexual immorality and greed. And those are the two most common sins in our world today. And that is, that is killing Christians around the world and just stifling their Christian growth is because of these two things. Pornography is running rampant in the church, and greed. And it's interesting that he starts with these two. Sexual morality is the broad general term for all kinds of illicit sexual behaviors. We are not to be sins to sexual uh, behaviors. We're not to be slaves to these things. He mentions greed, which is a, uh, he equals to cut, or, uh, idolatry. He says greed, which leads to idolatry. When we start worshiping the money and we start worshiping our, our stuff, it leads to idolatry. Making the, the acquisition of things or the satisfaction of desires, our ambition, is simply aiming too low. He's saying that, look, you know what? You were in union with Christ. You need to strip away all that junk. You need to get rid of all those earthly motivations. And you know what? You need to focus on a different thing. You need to strip your old self away. And when you, if you're focusing on, on money or the, uh, desires... You're aiming too low in the Christian life. Paul wants believers to look at these views, look at these vices from the godly's perspective. Look at the big picture and what God is doing in your life. These behaviors and attitudes are to be put to death because they reflect the way we once lived before, not the way we live with Christ. A transformed life, an exchanged life, an exchanged, transformed lifestyle should be the trademark of a new life in Christ. When we accept Christ, there should be a difference. That's why if you've heard me say this before, you cannot meet Christ and stay unchanged. When you meet Jesus, there is something happens to you and you change. The transformed life should be the trademark of our new life. Not only do our 
perverted passions and greed to be eliminated from the believer, but we must also get rid of hot tempers and sins of a sharp tongue. And he goes on to another list. And he talks about anger, rage. Anger is that subtle boiling under the, you're just, mm. like when the kids throw uh, mayonnaise all over the floor or something. You just, ah, you just get, you get mad, that boiling. Rage is that, that explosive anger. And then he goes in, and in between anger and rage, and in between that is slander, he mentions malice, which refers to ill will, the vicious, deliberate intention of doing harm to others. When you sit there and you think, man, I wish, I, you know, I wish that guy would just get a ticket. That's malicious. You want some harm to be done to something because maybe they've been, been wronged you in some way, and you, you hope they get... I don't know, fired from your job or, or they, they get a, they written up at work. Whatever it is, and you want some harm to be done to them, that's malicious or malice. His ill will may work itself out through angry outbursts and simple speech. So you, get this, you start saying things. Then he goes on and talks about slander, which is a defamation of character. Filthy language, obscene, abusive talk. Perverted passions, hot tempers, and sharp tongues are to be removed as part of the life-transforming process. These things, along with lying to, another, to each other, is inappropriate behavior for those who are in Jesus Christ. It's just wrong for them. We should be transformed by the Gospel. So what is the old self? The old self is literally the old man, and the new self is literally the new. We are completely transformed into something new. The old self refers to more than an individual condition. It's more than just the sinful nature. It's more than just us not having that sin nature because we have the Holy Spirit within us. It's more than all that. There's actually a corporate level on this, the body of Christ uh, level. Now that we are, uh, we are part of a new, uh, new association, a new community, we are part of the family of God. And, it look, and it's, there's difference there. We are members of this new community. And we ought to conduct ourselves in a way that enhance harmony in the community. Notice how the sins mentioned, the, the sins on this list right here, and the, and the ones before that, you notice that they all have to do with human relations? It's all about people. It's all about relationships. And this, these, these vices that he talks about destroy relationships. They disrupt the community and harm relationships. As individuals, as a believing community, our objective is to be a part of a transformation process of being renewed in knowledge in the image of our Creator. Our knowledge, be transformed in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we do that as a group, individually and as a group. Within this new community that we have, when we, we accept Christ and we become part of this community, because remember, this letter is talking about the church in Colossae. The church. He's not talking about just individuals. He's talking the whole church. So within this new community, all barriers are abolished. Distinctions. If he goes into another, some other verses, he says, you know, there's distinctions which normally divide people are now no longer there. No longer barriers. Because think about that time, that culture. They had Jews and Greeks. Well, that was a racial, uh, racial division. Well, that didn't happen. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek. 
There was a religious aspect of it. Circumcised versus uncircumcised. Cultural. Barbarian versus the other guy. forgot what it was. Social. The uh, slave or free. We, there's no significance. We are all in Christ now. So when we have that relationship, we are part of this community. We are part of in Christ because Christ is in all of us. Our relationship with Him is really all that matters. That's all that matters. Unity within the community is because Christ is in all. Unity within the community is because Christ is in all. Is indwelling all believers and enters all relationships. He does not mean that people cease to be Jew or Gentile or cease to be free or slaves. What he's talking about is in this new community, distinctions don't matter. It doesn't matter if we're fit whatever category you want to fit in society. It doesn't matter. False teachers in Colossae were fond of dividing people into categories. And, he would, and that's why he's addressing this very specifically. They would they said, well, we're rich, you're poor, you're this, you're that. And they would categorize people. And, and, and when you categorize people, you always elevate people. And you have, these people are worthy and these people are not. These people are better Christians and these people are not. And when you start categorizing people, that's what happens. And what he's addressing here is saying, look, we all come from different lives we all come from different walks of life. We all come from different backgrounds. And we all need to unify because, and have harmony and have peace because we are all in Christ. We're going to watch a video, a testimony of a, a woman named Heather. And she, she, her story is so powerful. I've, I've watched this video a number of times, and I still learn something new. Um, and it still hits me every time because her story is so powerful about this this mentality of how we're supposed to be. So take a look at this. Watch this video. I was born with a teen mother. She was 17 when she had me, and so it was a definite struggle for her. I was definitely not the popular girl at all and very picked on for not having money or the neighborhood that I lived in. And so I was really insecure and very vulnerable. And so what happened is when I was 14, I was raped. And that seemed to make a big change in me immediately. In my mind, I thought, you know, it was taken from me and now I'm gonna be in control. So I became very promiscuous from 14, 14 on. And then eventually I ended up pregnant at 17. So in big trouble. And I think in my heart, I never wanted to have my son experience the financial hardship that I did. And so I got a job as a go-go dancer. And then about six months later, I got a job as a bikini dancer. So it was like Satan really knew how to do it just the right way for me. You know, let's go from go-go dancing to bikini dancing to pasty to topless. And then eventually, I was a full new dancer. The more the clothing came off, the more money I made. So it definitely kept inspiring me to go further every time. My lifestyle reflected how I felt about myself. I treated myself like I was trash. I was drinking and partying and doing all of that. There were times that I would wake up stinking of alcohol, still drunk. 
I never saw myself as smart or funny or anything. The only thing I could see in myself was the outside. That's it. Honestly, I thought, I have a ticket to hell. Like, I am not making it to heaven. I didn't want to pay the price for the life I was living. I genuinely was nervous. I was sitting out at a coffee shop, and there were these girls, and they were talking to everybody about the church they went to, and they were inviting everyone to their church. I knew I needed to find a church, so I was like, you know, I, I think I'm gonna go to their church. Like, they look cool. Well, they took one look at me and passed me over. They went to every person but me. And it makes me sad because they didn't know how much I wanted that God that they had, you know. And so it, it still hurts me to this day, you know, that people passed me by. So that was, that was the time. And, you know, the amazing thing is when I arrived at that church, the second my foot touched the carpet, I had tears streaming down my face, and I knew I was never going to leave God. I ended up giving my life full-blown to God, and I turned my back on that world 100%. When I read the Bible, I know, like, this is real. This is for us right now. This is so current. And I realized, like, somebody needed to start reaching out to the girls. It started with me praying to God and asking Him, like, what do you want me to do? And that's when ideas started to come to me. It's kind of a welcoming mat to Christianity. It's actually a very simple ministry. We go into the strip club and we bring in gifts, food, flowers, homemade cards, and we set up in their dressing room kind of a mini party. And on their gift, it says, we love you just the way you are with the church name. And then they can either contact me directly or they know that they're welcome to come to that church just the way they are. I want them to come right where they're at. If they're dancing, they're dancing. If they're whatever they're doing right then, they could come right then because I don't know anyone who would give up a job for a God they don't know. They don't know that he loves them. They only know one thing, and that is that the outside of them is good. They don't know the inside's good. So it's it's actually been the biggest challenge of the ministry is not the sex industry. Never has been. Never even kind of has been. My challenge has been to have the church open their heart to let the people in to let them come in how they are, not to pick them apart and try to transform them faster than God, but just to allow God to come into their heart and to give them the time to change. It's a powerful message. Uh, it, it always gets me how she got passed over because of the way she looked. How many times do we do that to people where we judge them from the outside instead of the inside? We shouldn't judge them at all, but we judge them from the outside on things. See, the truth is, is all believers are equal. All believers are to discard any and all behaviors and attitudes which are inappropriate for this new life. If Jesus can forgive me for the lifestyle I've lived, he can forgive anybody else. If he can forgive Paul for being a murderer and, a, and, and going after Christians, trying to kill them. He was part of, of the first martyr in the Bible, Stephen. And Stephen, he was right there with Stephen, getting stoned to death. 
If you can forgive Paul, you can forgive Heather, but it needs to start with how we treat people. See, the truth is, is all believers are equal, and all believers are to disregard any and all behaviors and attitudes which are inappropriate for our new life. It's worth reading again. So with the old being discarded, if, we, if we're going to put off this old stuff, this slander and the, the malice and the anger and the rage, and we're going we're gonna to have all of that, we're going to get rid of all this junk and this greed that he lists, these social and, and moral sins, then what do we replace it with? They've got to be replaced by something. So what do we replace it with? And that's where he goes on. Paul goes on and talks about this, this put on the new man. Now he says, okay, you've been transformed by the gospel. You have changed. We're going to put off this old stuff, but now we've got some new things to put in there. And it gets into the, the description there. And verses 12 through 17 contain the virtues that stand in contrast to the vices mentioned in the previous verses. Since the old humanity has been put off and the new community and the new behaviors put on, believers are therefore to clothe themselves with a new kind of behavioral apparel, a new kind of behavior that fits in this new life. Before listing the appropriate attire, before he gets into the, the list of things, Paul goes on and reminds them, says, hey, you guys are God's chosen people. You're a holy and dearly loved. And that's an Old Testament reference to the people of Israel. And, and in Deuteronomy chapter 4, and he goes on and he says, look, you know what? You, you disregard this old stuff. Strip that, put it to death, get rid of it. Now we're going to put some new stuff on, but before we do that, I want you to remember something, that God loves you, he adores you, and you're a new creation in him, and he loves you. And so he goes right into it, a very important thing. And he says, okay, now that you're God's chosen people and you're dearly loved, let's put on some new stuff. Let's put on some new clothing. And then him, the first thing he goes into is compassion which refers to the heartfelt sympathy for those who suffer or are in need. Compassion is the first thing. We should have compassion with one another. Everybody's different in the different walks of life, and we have different places in our spiritual maturity. Some people are new Christians. Some people have been Christians for many years. Some people have been Christians most of their life. And we're all going to be different in our spiritual maturity. And so we need to have compassion for those. And we have to have compassion as people uh, are come into, the, into our community. We need to have kindness, and, which is a friendly, helpful spirit, which meets the needs of others through good deeds. We need to have humility. And I'm not talking about that false humility. Like we kind of, uh, I see it amongst a lot of preachers will kind of put themselves down, and it's like a false humility. And I don't, I don't, I can't stand that. Because you know what? Just be real. Real humility is an honest assessment of your good and your bad, your honest assessment of where you are. Yes, you know what? I have quirks, I have things that get under my skin. I'll admit that. And that's being honest. There's things that just drive me nuts. Sometimes church people drive me nuts. Sometimes people on the road drive me nuts. I have these things. I'm sure some of you can relate to that. So there's things that bug me, and there's things that bug you. But humility is understanding that and still saying, okay, these things bug me. This is where God wants me to be. So I'm going to try to get rid of this, and I'm going to go over here and try to fulfill this. And that is how we walk in the Christian life have a real 
Humility. Humility is an attitude free of pride and self-assertion. We need to have gentleness, which is also translated as meekness, which is an inner strength. The, Jesus is considered meek. And a lot of times people think meek is weak, but meek is not weak. Meek means an inner strength that doesn't have to show off his power. He's strong and gentle at the same time. And we have to have patience, which is a capacity to bear injustices of others. People will wrong us, but we don't need to go retaliate. People will do harm, say things to us, and it will offend us. And we'll, we'll, you know, we don't need to retaliate. We don't need to get revenge. We don't need to do those things because we have patience because of who Jesus is. Jesus has patience with us, and we'll have patience with others. The idea of putting up with the defenses of others continues with Paul. When Paul goes on, it says, making allowances for each other's faults. Making allowances... In each other's, with each other's faults. And that's in verse 13. Believers are, are to go beyond the quiet acceptance of forgiving somebody that offends us. But we're to, to fully be forgiven. If we're fully forgiven by Christ, then we need to be forgivers. The standard for this forgiveness is Christ Himself. So if Jesus is the standard for forgiveness, how much did He forgive me of my sin? And if he, is, if, if, he is giving me, if he has forgiven me this much sin in my life, then i got to at least, at least forgive others for the same stuff. The minimum. Jesus forgives all of us for, for everything we've done. That's why murderers in prison can be forgiven. Rapists in prison can be forgiven. So Jesus is our standard. Paul saves the most important item to clothe ourselves with at the end, at verse 14. He goes to the very end and says, clothe ourselves with love. He says in verse 14, it says, above all, clothe yourself with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Isn't that beautiful? In perfect harmony. Without love, all other virtues may not or may amount to mere moralism or little else. And we also see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the first 15 verses or so. When love is present, there's harmony and unity in the community. When love is present, there's harmony and unity in the community. It's a love that, that leads to perfect unity. When, when we love one another... We will unify together. Believers are to let the peace of Christ rule their hearts. And Colossians are told not to follow these false teachers that talk about, about disqualifying them. And in chapter 2, verse 8, talked about disqualifying them. And that, that phrase disqualify is also interpreted as being an umpire, you know, making rules to, to disqualify people. And what he's saying is, you know what? The Colossians are saying, don't do that. Don't, don't let them disqualify you. When a dispute arises, the believers to let the peace of Christ make the call. Whenever, whenever, whatever will lead to peace must be deciding factor so that peace will be preserved. Peace is important. The transformation process is to include any and all areas and activities of life in places and in all ways the believers to honor the name Jesus Christ. And everything we do, we should be honoring God. And when we dishonor God by getting a rage or malice or slander, we need to repent immediately and give God the praise and ask Him to change us from the inside out. 
Genuine spirituality is not found in following the false teachings that, that Paul's talking about here, which leads away from Christ. True, genuine spirituality is found in having our lives transformed by the character of God. Very soon, we're going to have a change in the seasons. We're, we're, we're at the time of year where things are going to start blooming and things are going to start growing and, and it's going to be beautiful. I love this state. I really do. I, I love this state. It's a gorgeous state. Uh, it, it's one of the most beautiful states in our country. And, and pretty soon, springtime is going to be here and we're going to see all this stuff blooming. It's just a simple way of life. Change is the way of life. And we all need to change in our life. You and I need to experience some radical change in our life. We need to follow Jesus with all our heart, mind, and soul. See, some of us are heading in, in different directions in our lives than we should be going. Some of us are going in directions where we shouldn't go at all, and we need to have a radical change in the directions. We need a U-turn. Some of us have attitudes that need a radical adjustment. We need to change our attitudes. Some of us are complete change in the purpose for being. We're not here to get rich, get things, or become big in our company or anything else. We are here to be transformed into the image of Christ. And sometimes that can be painful. Sometimes that can be very discomforting. These are all, these are all actions that must, we must be willing to submit to God will never force them on you. You notice that on this whole message, in, in Paul's writings, it says he's telling us to put these things on. See, God won't force you to change. He'll provide you opportunity to change, but he won't force you to change. You have to submit to that change. The Holy Spirit's within us to guide us, to correct us, to lead us toward holiness. And it's up to us to participate in that. So whatever change that you need in your life, whatever it is that you need to remove and put that old stuff off so you can be, replace it with your new self who is in Christ, whatever that is, seek the Holy Spirit and ask Him to change you. One of the most drastic changes that I went through was when I got on my knees and I said, Lord, mold me into the man you want me to be. Whatever it is, discipline me. And he, and he worked in my life and changed me, forced me to change, put me in financial hardships, put us in health risk. We, Jenny ended up in the hospital multiple times in the one year. There's all these things happen to change me and force me to rely on him and to become the man that he wanted me to be, not the man I wanted to be. So ask him to change you from the inside out and mold you. Because that's what he wants. He wants that total submission so are you willing to allow God to change you? Are you willing to submit to Him and let Him change you? Are you willing to say by faith that I'm here, God, and I'll do whatever's necessary to be transformed into likeness of you? If that's you, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for who you are and, and the fact that you love us enough to change us into Christ-likeness, Lord. Father God, I know that we have sin in our lives and I know that we're transformed in this renewing of this newness when we, when we unify with you, when the Holy Spirit comes in us. But I also know that we have a part in it too, Lord. So Father God, I ask you to work in all of our lives to help us transform into somebody that you want us to be, whatever that is. Father God, help us grow in compassion and love and, and patience and kindness 
and mercy. Help us grow in that area. Help us love one another to the point where we have perfect unity and harmony here and in our lives. Father God, we love you so much. and We just ask you to continue to work in our lives, send the Holy Spirit with us and guide us and control us, or, or guide us and, and develop us into holiness. Father God, thank you for everybody here and their faithfulness and their love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.